The lesson we learned is there's actually a missing link after product market fit that doesn't get discussed. It's sort of like, go figure out that sales and marketing thing. And frankly, that pissed me off. (laughs) What do you mean to figure out the sales and marketing thing? Like, what does that mean? And so I think we figured out is there's a missing phase after product market fit. And we coined the term go to market fit. Hmm. And it's the combination of finding urgency and building a repeatable playbook to win customers over and over again. Like if you can find that urgent pain that drives leads and interest and causes customers to buy now, and you can build a repeatable playbook to find and win customers over and over again, that's what unlocks rapid, massive growth. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit. This is Ankur and Lima. In today's show, we're excited to have with us Bob Tinker, former founder and CEO of MobileIron, one of the leaders in mobile security. Bob took the company from zero to 150 million in revenue and to the eventual IPO. Under Bob's leadership, MobileIron became one of the fastest growing tech companies in the world from 2010 to 2014, according to Deloitte's Fast 500 Index. Having experienced hyperscale and growth, Bob shared his pearls of wisdom in the book, Survival to Thrival. He is now the managing partner of Metamorph, a private equity firm focused on B2B SaaS companies. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ankur. Thanks, Nelman. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, it's so good to have you. And finally, I'm glad we are able to uh, connect and uh, have you share your experiences. Before we get started, I'd love to know what's been the best and the worst part of the pandemic been personally for you? Well, start with the worst is clearly sort of the economic and human impact of it. Oh, man. Um, Talked about that all day. The best part is that I get to spend a lot more time with my kids. My son's a rising sophomore in college. My daughter's a senior in high school. And they actually, we got to hang out together for like nine months, which was spectacular for a parent. I think a little less fun for them, but it was spectacular for us. That is awesome. Yeah, that, that's been generally the theme when we ask the guests having to spend time with the family. I've always worked from work, but this has been a pleasant surprise for me and a lot of us as well. You've done a lot of things in your career. You've, you've done products and marketing, biz dev, sales, of course, uh, CEO. And you've kind of likened your career progression as a spiral versus a slope. Uh, was this all part of a grand design or did you sort of stumble upon these roles through just self-discovery? Look, there's no sort of right or wrong answer here. Like if you think about your career progression as a slope where you go from a manager to a director to a VP, like in the same discipline, like that's totally great. It's a very tried and true path. The other one's a spiral. Like I followed the spiral and it was not like a grand design. I'm sure that would make me seem much more forethoughtful if that was the case, but that was not the case. It was really being opportunistic and curious. And interestingly, the hardest part about it was being willing to just make a lateral move because you sort of grow up thinking that the most important thing is to get promoted in the role you're in. But if you're going to make a lateral move into a different team, like you're not going to get promoted to go take, go work in another team. So I think that was probably the hardest part about it. You know, in retrospect, I think it helped me be a first time CEO because I'd actually been in a bunch of different functions, but look, there's no sort of one path that I wish I could say it was a grand plan, but I think I just kind of stumbled into it. Charlie Munger, who is one of my uh, favorite business people, you know, he always talks about multidisciplinary learning, not just like technology, but like physics and psychology and everything else. 
Um, yeah, I, be kind of a polymath. Be, like, be pick kinda, up on lots of different exactly. topics. Exactly. Yeah. I think the fear that most people have, and I know we have only limited time in this, probably you can write another book on how to build a great career. But I think the fear people have is just having to hit the reset button every time you go into a new role and then sort of grow yeah. organically. Did you find it challenging or were you sort of like you take on the new role and given your talents, you you get to the next level pretty immediately? No, I kind of had to give up on like getting promoted more quickly. I think my promotional path went more slowly, but I think I had more of a long-term view of it that I was curious to learn these different things. And I just thought business was interesting. I was originally an engineer and I went to go work in an IT department at a bank. And I realized there's like a two-class system in business. There's like the tech people and the business people. And that kind of pissed me off actually. So I was like, hey, I want to go learn this business stuff. I want to learn how these different parts of the, the, the company run. And that's how I ended up in Silicon Valley is like out here, the technology is the business. So you can do both. And I think it was just sort of curiosity and following what was interesting, but it was hard for a little while. I'm not going to lie. Some of my friends are being promoted to director of this and VP of that. And I was still sort of in the middle and uh, that was hard, but then I caught up. On the lateral move piece as well, Bob. So if someone is actually thinking about that and you, you said opportunistic and learning mindset, but now that you did that two, three times, is there a playbook or a guiding principle that when you're doing the lateral move, these are the two things that you should think about. Of course, you're giving up on the growth, but what else? So the biggest thing is, do you smell an opportunity? Like, do you smell an opportunity to learn? Do you smell an opportunity to make a difference? Opportunity doesn't present itself every day. And so if you smell it, if you see it, that's an opportunity to go potentially grab. The second thing is, is there somebody you can learn from? Doesn't even have to be in the company. Just do you have somebody you can ask questions of? Do you have somebody you can get advice for? Do you have a mentor that can be helpful on that? And it's a great excuse to develop a terrific professional network because people like are honored when you ask them for their advice and help, like they're kind of flattered. And I think I was scared to do that. And then I realized that people like to help. So in some ways, like the people that helped to be a mentor to me as I sort of moved from engineering into product and the marketing and the business development and sales, like have become sort of my club of mentors that helped me along, along the way. Totally. The, the power of asking is the most underrepresented aspect of all of this. No, I kind of agree with you, Bob, because as a woman leader, the day I realized that I, I don't have to be hesitant about it, opportunities unlocked in many ways. I reached out to Ankur, I reached out to so many leaders, and there's so many people who are just willing to help, but you don't realize that unless you ask. So I, I want to spend some time on your mobile ends journey the growth and the hyperscale phase under your leadership. You talk a lot about their finding the initial traction and product market fit. And then Mobile Lion became a rocket ship. You also talk a little bit about survival to thrival. How did you do it? The first thing is, do you smell an opportunity? And this was 2008. Cisco had bought Airspace. And I spent three years at Cisco. Like, I actually had more fun than I thought I would. I stayed longer than my, my commitment was for. But then in my third year, AJ and Suresh, my two co-founders at Mobile Iron had spent the last six months talking to customers about this smartphone thing. And they realized that smartphones were going to be big in the enterprise and it was going to be a challenge. And interestingly, I just had had my own personal experience with that. Cisco, we rolled out 25,000 palm trios. I know it's kind of funny to think about now, but like 25,000 palm trios with mobile email on them. <laughs> and users were enthralled 
it was just like, give me, give me, give me. This is changing my life. It's making my work easier. At the same time, I got to see what an absolute nightmare it was for IT, like total nightmare. I was like, huh, yeah, this is going to be something. So when AJ and Suresh asked me to join them as a co-founder, I leaped at the chance. That's when you sort of smell opportunity is the first step. And I think one of the things that often gets overlooked in Silicon Valley is sort of the start with the problem rather than the technology. I think sometimes in Silicon Valley, we sort of start with the technology and then try and figure out who to sell it to. We started the customer and the problem and worked backwards to figure out the solution. And I think that actually helped us a lot. Then it was just about working with those early teaching customers, like was kind of phase two. Hey, go find 20, 30, 40 teaching customers and figure out how to make five of them paying reference customers. And that sounds really simple. It's a nice pinnacle goal, but in order to get that to work, like a ton of stuff has to line up underneath that. Like get a product, you got to have a problem. Like you got to have all that add up. And I think AJ was a real master at finding teaching customers, which are the ones that you learn from. You can ask questions, you can ask feedback, and maybe there'll be a paying customer someday, but having that early set of customers and prospects you can talk to made a huge difference for us because if you can't get the five or 10 paying reference customers or get to a couple hundred sort of free trial customers, like you don't really get to pass go. And I think in the discussion around product market fit, that sort of early exploration often gets kind of overlooked. And the answer is just go find product market fit. Turns out, at least for me, the thing that worked really well was this concept of teaching customers. Once you find product market fit, then there's like a whole nother journey on the backside, which is, it's really sort of one of my big pet peeves. And I ended up writing a book about it. So we talk about that if you guys want to. Yeah. The first 50, 100 customers, the initial traction, product market fit, whatever you know, call it, I think that's hard, really, really hard. But then there is that sort of the next phase whereby you're starting to see that, you're starting to see the momentum. And like now the VCs and everybody else are like, well, spend more, get more, like go become a hockey stick. Is it just sort of doing whatever you were doing, like two, three X, or that changes how you operate the company, how you hire, retain? Talk us through the hyper growth phase, that 2010 to 2014, the things that you now know, but you didn't know back then. Walk right. us through that sort of hyperscale and growth journey of MobileIron. Yeah, there was two core lessons I learned the hard way on sort of MobileIron going from like 50 early people with like 20, 30 customers to 1,000 people and 15,000 enterprise customers. Like that was over like a three and a half, four year period. And those two core lessons are number one, as your company changes, your job changes. So you have to change. I think I really wish somebody had sat me down and been like, hey, Bob, like you're still the CEO, but the CEO job is different now. And so therefore you have to adapt to the job. And so like, that's a whole topic. So we talk about that. The other tricky lesson I learned is that product market fit is not enough to unlock growth. You know, there's a ton of B2B software companies to get to 20, 30, 40, 50 customers. And then they say, okay, great. You found product market fit, time to grow, go raise a bunch of venture capital, hire a bunch of salespeople, go. And they do that. And then they wake up like nine months later and they went from like 50 customers to 60 and they're burning a ton more cash. Everybody's freaking out. The lesson we learned is there's actually a missing link after product market fit that doesn't get discussed. It's sort of like, go figure out that sales and marketing thing. And frankly, that pissed me off. It's like, <laughs> what do you mean to figure out the sales and marketing thing? Like, what does that mean? And so I think we figured out is there's a missing phase after product market fit. And we coined the term go to market fit. Hmm. And it's the combination of finding urgency 
and building a repeatable playbook to win customers over and over again. Like if you can find that urgent pain that drives leads and interest and causes customers to buy now, and you can build a repeatable playbook to find and win customers over and over again, that's what unlocks rapid, massive growth. Actually, late 2009, we won our first 30, 40 customers. And then we won another 10, then we won another 20, and it was fine. Once we found go-to-market fit, this repeatable playbook and the urgency, we went from winning like 20 customers a quarter to 50 to 150 to 300, two or three years, we, we, we won 500 enterprise customers a quarter. It was nuts. But I think that really illustrated for me that there's this cognitive gap in how Silicon Valley talks about entrepreneurship, that product market fit, you got to get there. If you don't get there, you don't get to pass go. But the what's next part, this topic of go to market fit, I think needs to become thing for people. Uh, made a real big difference for us. To read it was eye-opening for me, Bob, in your book, and I also heard one of your talks, but you also mentioned there it's almost impossible for founders to find the go-to-market fit. You talk about the pixie dust analogy there. <laughs> Why is that? And then how should, if it's not the founder, who should be yeah. finding that uh, go-to-market fit? There's dilemmas in building an early-stage company that as a founder, you can do founder selling. And founder selling is really powerful. You can commit to a customer, you can get meetings, like you can say things, you know everything about your product. Founders are amazing at winning customers. The problem is that's not scale. And probably the biggest failure mode that I see in early stage startups is founders win through founder selling the first 10, 15, 20 customers. Then they're like, all right, I'm gonna go hire a couple of salespeople. And then you say, hey, do what I do. Just do what I do, I'm the founder, just do what I did. And it doesn't work. So. And the reason is because founders can get meetings. They know the 27 things about the product. They can make commitments. Like there's all sorts of things that make a founder selling not representative of a salesperson selling or product-led selling. And founders can absolutely find product market fit. But in order to find go-to-market fit, you need to actually have some non-founders that are doing the marketing and selling. And that's the real, the reality test for can you find a repeatable playbook that like normal people? So should that be a sales guy? Should it be uh, one of your early employees? The biggest thing, it's got to be anybody but the founder. <laughs> um, okay. It depends a little bit on what type of go-to-market model that you think the startup is going to follow. If it's going to be a sales-led model, then you need to kind of have a Davy Crockett kind of salesperson. There are these sort of early stage salespeople that are like part sales, part product. They can kind of make stuff up. They ask lots of questions. They sort of look a little bit to the left. They look a little bit to the right. Like they find the path through the woods. That's why I call them like Davy Crockett sales reps. If you're doing more of like a product-led selling where you're just trying to get free trials and do demand gen and do experiments to be able to do that, then the founder has nothing to do with it. Then it's all just digital product interaction experimentation. So... In both those cases, like in order to find the repeatable recipe, you have to move beyond the founder, either towards, you know, product-led growth model or a sales-led growth model, but the founder can get you to first base, but not beyond. Got it. You talk about the repeatable go-to-market motion, and I want to double-click on it. Like, what does it really mean? And, and by the way, you know, one of the mm -hmm. things that you talked about, you know, add more money, hire a whole bunch of more people doesn't solve any problem. I've lived through that, by the way, zero to nope. eight to 16 to 25. 
to 26 to 27 to 24 and 23. Uh, it, it didn't scale. And, and it's 100, so scary. No, it is so scary. It's terrifying. And, and, and hundreds of people had to be let go because now you've acquired your Series B and et cetera. So totally attest to that. But yep. for an average listener, they're like, well, I mean, Bob, how difficult can it be? I mean, yeah, you, you need sales enablement people, sales training, ask the marketing to put together like 30 pretty slides, make every new rep go through the, the ringer. Uh, there is a certification process where Bob has to sign the certificate. He's like, yeah, now you're trained and approved. What else is there? You just hit on the biggest mistake that I made in the very early days of mobile iron and building our go-to-market. When we had our first couple of Davy Crockett salespeople, they're like, all right, let's work on the playbook. And in my head, I translated playbook into PowerPoint pitch. Yeah. I was like, we just need a better PowerPoint pitch. <laughs> what else is there? Thing. And they just looked at me like, you're an idiot. <laughs> And most product-led people, that's their natural inclination. It's like, oh, you need a playbook. They're like, oh, we just need a better PowerPoint pitch. The answer is no. So the go-to-market playbook is actually the repeatable recipe from the first time you touch a customer to where you win them and make them successful. Like it's, imagine a whiteboard in your office up on the conference room. Like across the top, you have sort of the stages of the customer journey from the first time you touch them to where you win them, to where you make them successful. And under each one of those stages, you have things that you say and do. You have capabilities in the products that you share. And then there's different tools that the company delivers to be able to make each one of those stages successful. And some companies figure that out intuitively, but the problem is unless you actually have a written sales playbook that's like on one page, like one PowerPoint slide, like here's the six stages, here's the things people do, like it's not repeatable. And I think that was the big lesson for me is the pitch is actually just one bullet point on one of the tools delivered for one of the stages in the go-to-market playbook. The go-to-market playbook basically becomes like the operating system for your entire go-to-market motion. Like people pin it up on their walls, your Salesforce stages are designed around it. The rest of the company figures out what they do. Like if you get it right, it's amazing. And credit sort of the first couple salespeople and the first sales leader I hired at Mobile Iron to teaching me that. They came from a very strong sort of sales process, sales enablement mindset. And this idea of a repeatable go-to-market playbook, like, is not just a PowerPoint pitch. For So for folks in your audience that thought that, <laughs> you basically made the same mistake I did in like 2008. Forget the audience. I mean, this is a note to self as well. Nilima and I are making notes as well. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, so, so on that one, Bob, like once you have the go-to-market playbook and you start executing... How mm -hmm. do you know you found a go-to-market fit? Is it the hockey stick? There is this vibe in the company that everyone is aligned. There are some metrics that you can see that, that figure it out. But the reality is you just start to feel the momentum. Leads start to come in. Customers convert to evals. Deals are happening. Salespeople or marketing people are happy. Like you, you just feel the momentum. Like the analogy I'll give you is like, I don't know if you surf, but like, Paddling around in the water is like a lot of work. That's what happens before go-to-market fit. When you sort of paddle and catch the wave and all of a sudden start to build up momentum, that's what go-to-market fit feels like. And it's, when you start to find it, it's some of the most fun you'll ever have in building a startup. Like that is just a blast when you start to feel that early momentum. Like you guys have been in early stage startups. Like yeah. you can remember it. Like it's some of the most fun times you will ever have in your careers when you start to feel that momentum build. It's a blast. 
You're right. Like, I mean, there are all kinds of metrics you can have, like ARR growth and blah, blah, blah. My decoder ring is that if in any given quarter, if I don't know the half the logos that we closed, that means we have found the market fit and we are way beyond like where exactly. I have to know like every deal that was ever closed. Look, I mean, in the hyperscale phase, you talked about two things. One was playbook, repeatable playbook, etc. But the second big thing you parked on the side, which is the you have to change and the psychology of the CEO, and you call you you call it the soul of the CEO. How do you have to personally change? I mean, you were the man, like you were the guy who who got the company from zero to 40, 50, whatever, but now you have a whole bunch of people doing it. How do you have to change? So as the company changes, like my job as CEO changed. But it's not like you get like a memo someday to say, well, you've got a new CEO job, time to change. And you get these unhelpful memes like you need to scale. What the hell does that mean? Like you need to scale? Like what does that mean? That is totally unactionable. What I found that was actually the hard part was unlearning. The very things that helped make me successful as sort of a phase one CEO in many cases, got in the way as we shifted to phase two. And then those phase two things became problems when we got to phase three. And I'll give you some really specific examples. So in the very sort of early stages, being a CEO is sort of like Captain America or Wonder Woman <laughs> with your platoon in the woods. Like you're digging ditches, you're throwing punches, you're getting punched, you're the project manager. It's a blast. Like it's super fun. But then at about 50 or 100 people, your job changes to be more like the Avengers where you have to hire a band of superheroes. Yeah. You have to let go of the things you've been doing and you hire people that are better than you. And the first thing they do is call everything you've built ugly because they're like, oh, I can totally do better. And that you're like, oh, but I've been working really hard on this. That feels terrible, but that's exactly the right thing to be happening. And then the next shift, and this one was really hard on me, was with about, about three or 400 people you shift from being kind of the Avengers to being more like Professor X in like the uh, X-Men where you're like the dean of a university and you have to do a lot fewer things, but for a lot more people and repeat yourself over and over and over and over and over and over again, which drove me berserk. Like, because in the Captain America, Wonder Woman and Avengers stage, you're like, we talked about this. We decided we moved on. Let's go. In the Professor X phase, like part of your job as CEO is to be a signal generator, which means repeating yourself. Yeah. And I was judging my performance and my role as like the late stage CEO through the lens of like the mid-stage CEO. And like I had to unlearn that. And that was a rough transition for me. But you know, we spend a lot of time talking about what we're learning and that's super important. But one of the things that I wish... Uh, we would spend more time bringing into sort of the forefront of our brain is what are the things we need to unlearn? And I think that's usually where people get tripped up. For me, that required a lot of self-awareness and sort of self-reflection. Feedback from your team. I'll tell you, one of the biggest things my team did for me is when we were at about 50, 60 people, two of my execs sat me down and they're like, Bob, we are not getting from you what we need. Oh, wow. That's... Ouch. Uh, that hurt. <laughs> That, that, Bob, uh, that was going to be one of my questions. How do you know when to change? Looks like your team came in and supported. Yeah, hit me over the head. Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question is how do you know? Like, you know, the first thing is sort of look in the mirror and sort of have a level of self-awareness, which is hard. But I think being a good CEO requires a level of self-awareness. 
The second thing is feedback from your team. If your job is changing and you're not changing with it, your team is suffering as a result. And you just hope that your team has the same courage to come sit you down and tell them what they told me, which is, hey, Bob, we're not getting from you what we need. And I'll tell you exactly. So effectively, the problem was I was still being the CEO of the stuff that I like to do hmm. and not being the CEO of the company. I was being focused on customer and product stuff because that's what I was good at. That's what I like to do. And the early, very early stage, everybody does sort of what they're good at. But now we sort of were growing up and they needed me to be the CEO of the whole company. And I wasn't being the CEO of the whole company. You know, I needed to be paying attention to sales, product, go to market, finance, culture, like all these different things. And I'm, I owe them a debt of gratitude for sitting me down and hit me over the head with that. So th I think it's some combination of self-awareness and looking in the mirror. And hopefully your team feels confident enough about themselves to be able to and feel like they have permission to come give you bad news. So that's an interesting point you make here that you have to own and manage like eight function. You had a certain characteristics as a CEO, like you were a product or a sales or go-to-market facing leader. You would naturally gravitate towards that. And then whatever your weaknesses were, like you would find the best talent in the world. They don't have to be managed like the best CFO ever. So you can continue to focus on those function. Isn't that the right way to do it? Like, so what do you mean when you say like, oh, I had to focus on like nine different things. You may not be a lean-in type of people, pleaser type of person because you were always the go, go, go guy, but then you hire a head of HR who's amazingly good at that function. So when you say like you had to do eight function, how do you, how do you balance the two? The thing that helped me was really starting to think about the business in swim lanes hmm. and how I was spending my time. Because I was spending 80% or 90% of my time on the stuff that I was good at and knew how to do. And remember, like, we're only like 30, 40, 50 people. It's not like I can go hire a VP of this, a VP of that, a VP of this, a VP of that to like yeah. go. Like, I mean, you're still relatively small at this stage. So I got some advice from an executive coach that drove me to create these swim lanes, like product, customers, go to market, finance, and culture. And think ahead a year and be like, where do we want to be in a year and work backwards and then pay attention to how you spend your time across these swim lanes. And I was totally spending like 80, 90% of my time where I like to be. And you're right. I could be like, oh, I can keep doing that and just hire to compensate. But that's not what the team needed then. They needed me to be the CEO of the whole company. Yes, you should hire to compensate for your weaknesses so you can spend time where you, but as CEO, you kind of need to be CEO of the whole company. And just because you're good at something, doesn't mean that's the right thing for you to be spending time on. The right thing for you to be spending time on is whatever's the most important thing for the business, whether or not you're actually good at it or not. And maybe that's a controversial point of view, but when you're 40, 50, 60, 70 people, you don't have the luxury of having a, an army of executives that work for you that are really good at stuff. I think it's also the art of letting go and then start capturing things from... The art of letting go is, is it's not only in where you're really good at or where it's interesting, but it's also like across how you scale from a team perspective and you have to start trusting as well. So I think it's a mix of that as well as spanning your attention across. I would yeah, say. that's a great point. That's actually a really good point because as you start to hire your band of Avengers, like you have to hand them the leadership role and whatever they lead and you have to let go. Otherwise, like you're not going to be able to hire grade A people. Like the last thing a grade A exec is going to want to do is work for a CEO who's totally in their kitchen on everything, right? So you have to let go or you're not going to be able to hire grade A executives. 
or if they do, they're going to quit. So it's one of the things I struggled with that is sort of like this, how do you let go, but still have some level of visibility into what's going on so that you're, you're delegating, but you're not abdicating. Hmm, and I think finding that balance between delegation and abdication is a tricky one. Regarding sort of managing the psychology, your own psychology, right? And the mm-hmm. question is about intensity, or as Frank Slootman calls it, amping it up. You know, as a CEO, you're a founder, CEO, this is your baby. You know, you're always in a high intense mode. When do you know mm-hmm. when to turn the heat on, on your team uh, as they're getting comfortable, maybe raising the bar versus just letting go, let them be, have a good work-life balance? But the answer could be, well, you got to do a bit of both. But then like everybody's like, well, this guy's a bipolar. Like sometimes he's telling us to be having a good work-life balance. Sometimes he's just turning the heat on. How do you balance the two? Yeah, I'm a little bit more with Slootman on this that I think if you're going to be part of a startup and building a startup from like zero to a thousand people, if you are fortunate enough to be in one of those situations where you have a chance to ride a rocket ship, like there's not a lot of work-life balance. There's yeah. just not. Like you're just trying to keep the plane in the air and gain altitude. And, <laughs> and change know, the engine. I think. Mid-air. Yeah, and like and climb out on the wing and rip open the fuselage <laughs> and screw around the wing. And, like it's terrifying, by the way. I, I just think there's a level of intensity required that for me was really hard on my family. The way I sort of figured out how to deal with that was that in any given month, my work-life balance wasn't very good. But if I could occasionally find like a week where I could sort of dial it back for a little bit and sort of rebalance things, that was sort of how I did it. Like I had very bad work-life balance in any sort of given week-to-week situation, but every once in a while, I'd find a spot where I could really dial it back or encourage my team to dial it back. I think work-life balance every week in an early-stage company is like, I just think, impossible. If you're actually in a market that matters and you've got competitors who are good and trying to go after you, because if you're in a market that matters, you'll have competitors that'll come after you. And I think that's the ultimate thing that keeps you honest. Yeah. No, I'm glad you said it. I think in Silicon Valley nowadays, this is not the right thing to say, but Jack Welch has said it over and over again. Uh, Slootman obviously has it. I, I don't think there are a lot of options. Elon Musk has been doing it for like 20, 30 years. And my God, I mean, the guy has not lost it. And out of intensity. There's just no other way to do it, honestly. I, I agree with you. I think there's a thing that I found as CEO that was really hard on this was I call it the Saturday morning problem, which is <laughs> you have four hours on a Saturday morning. How do you spend it? Do you spend it with your friends, your family, doing the things that are important to you? Or you've got 800 families that are betting on you and the business to do better. Mm. Do you spend it on helping the business? Yeah, it's a good like That creates a low-grade stress that is constantly like... <laughs> There in the back of your head and it's real and it matters. It doesn't mean like every Saturday morning you have to make the same choice, but you feel it and it's real. Yeah. I'm sort of having flashbacks right now thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Bob, how open can you be about this challenge with your team? Because it can be a combined intensity, right? And it kind of leads into my follow-up question on the culture. There are companies where the culture is very transparent and when you can have the combined intensity of your team, it is again a very different mindset versus just the exec team taking that load. This is where the power of the team really does come in. Actually, one of the companies I'm working with right now has sort of an engineering leadership transition issue that we're going through right now. And so one of the other executives is stepping in to run engineering and like his head's in a meat grinder right now. 
and he stepped in, he's doing it. What was really cool to see was the rest of the team was like, Hey, how can I help? What can we offload from you? So you can go really focus on that. And that's what happens in a really high functioning executive team is there aren't like territoriality around budgets or hires or who, who's what's responsibility. It's more like, what do we need to do? And how do we pitch in and ship things to be able to make it happen? And that type of cooperation on an exec team is what enables like the power of the many, but it also gives individuals a chance to step back or go focus on something else for a little while and have some coverage. And I think that requires a level of transparency and honesty saying like, Hey, I need help on this. Can somebody help me? I think this idea that saying I've got it all under control all the time tends to lead to less, less good options. And that was a big lesson for me during the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. I felt like it was sort of my responsibility as CEO to go like lock myself in a room and come up with the plan. Here's the plan, how we're going to navigate this. And it's all on me and I got to go figure it out. And that was the wrong thing to do. The right answer would have been to spend some time with my team and us all figure it out together. And like, we got there eventually, but like, it took us longer to do it because I felt like it had to all be on me and I couldn't ask for help. And I had to unlearn that fear <laughs> and be willing to say, Hey, look, I need help on this. You know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that's, uh, that's something Ankur's favorite. Oh quote. yeah. The Peter Drucker quote. <laughs> I love that quote. Yes. We touched upon a little bit on the culture, but how do you define culture? It's so intangible. It moves. Is it something that comes from the founders, comes from the company, comes from certain people? If your product is like your muscles in the company and your people or your brain, like your culture is your soul as a company. And it really matters. I think you just asked the really profound question, which is where does culture come from? I think the way to answer that is to think when you first put a company together, where does the early culture come from? Because culture just sort of manifested from somewhere. Where did it come from? So any small team, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people that all get together to go pursue something, build a culture, either organically and accidentally or deliberately. And that was, is one of my big pieces of advice for early stage teams out there is that you can build culture organically and just let it evolve, or you can be proactive about it and deliberate about it and say, here's the type of culture we want to have. I'm personally a big fan of being deliberate about it because by the time you get to 20 people, you already have a culture and it's hard to change once it's there. I think people get wrong about defining and driving culture is they turn up with a bunch of bullshit gym poster words. <laughs> like, you know, like those posters hanging on the wall in the gym that say like innovation with like an eagle soaring or like integrity, two handshaking, my favorite. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows how to put that stuff into real action. Like it's not actually usable. So like gym posters aren't culture and engineers and technical people particularly hate to have this conversation around culture because it just turns into like gym poster words. And they're like, oh, this is going to be a stupid poster on the conference room wall. Ben Horowitz said this best. Enron had integrity, honesty, and accountability as the three culture posters. Totally. <laughs> Dude, those were gym posters. Those are, those were culture things. It was like, just, that was like gym posters. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I love that analogy. We tripped over one question, sort of totally accidentally, that really helped us figure out our early culture. And the question was this, hey, let's talk about the places we've worked in the past. What did we like about the culture? Mm. What did we dislike? And that took us from like 
baloney gym poster, gym poster stuff to really specific things that worked or didn't work for us. And you ended up with like this mosaic of ideas and concepts that are important to you to do and to not do. And that turned out to be a really productive conversation that helped us sort of figure out like, who do we want to be? I'll give you a very specific example that came out of that is that we made intellectual honesty a cultural touchdown, which is celebrate the good, but talk about the bad. People would use that. Like I had my director of QA come into my office. We were like 50, no, we we're probably 250 people. He's like, Bob, I got to play the intellectual honesty card. We got like a turd over here. We got to go figure it out. <laughs> and as the company gets bigger, people like stop telling you the bad stuff because they're worried like, and like, being able to give people permission to talk about the bad stuff and the intellectual honesty to do that, I think is one of the reasons why the team told me when we were 50 people, they weren't getting from me what they needed yeah. because they felt like they had permission. And like that came out of this question about what are the things we liked about past cultures and what are the things we didn't like about past cultures was that concept. And that turned out to be a really powerful cut, you know, culture touchstone for it, us. You Interestingly, fast forward two years, four years, people were using that as permission to be an asshole. <laughs> and so we talk about the, t celebrate the good, talk about the bad, be constructive. Yeah. Right? You also had a, a famous Melton example. Melton is one of my favorite uh, characters from Office Space. What was that cultural norm oh. at Mobile Iron? <laughs> you remember Melton? <laughs> well, well, actually, have we talked about this? That's so funny you brought that up. So We have not. Everybody, so you've, you've seen the movie Office Space, right? Yeah, you know, the red stapler. Yeah. So everybody at Mobile Iron, when they joined in their little initial welcome kit, got a red swing line stapler. <laughs> <laughs> and most of the people were like, ah, oh, that's a funny pop culture joke. Like this guy that we hired in Germany was like, what's up with the red stapler? <laughs> so you can have funny little like cultural touchstones like that that are just funny. Yeah. So I think we bought, we were the largest buyer of red swing line staplers for like a couple of years. Oh, that is crazy. You define the culture with the team together and then it sort of percolated down. So follow-up question, everyone is running uh, when you start the startup. So I want the top talent uh, in my company mm -hmm. and uh, how important it is to hire top talent in your company. Like, does everyone need to be a superstar? Look, the founders of a company need to be really high caliber because you got a very small team. You're getting a company off the ground. You're like birthing a thing. And then you sort of run into a challenge. And I think this doesn't get talked about that often in Silicon Valley. You sort of talk to somebody that like built a great company. Like, of course, you need to hire top talent. You should only hire grade A people. And that's all you ever hire. And the reality is the founders are going to be grade A because that's where you started. But the, when you're just getting off the ground, it's really hard to hire grade A talent. Because grading talent is going to look for proof points and examples. And they want to be able to like join something they know is going to be successful. And in hires like five through 15, like you don't know whether you're going to be successful or not. So it's really, really hard to hire top talent at that stage. And what I found worked there was sell the vision and the opportunity that, hey, look, this could be really big. The second thing is look for people who want to get in the ground floor. Because if they've already been there, done that, often they won't come to something that early stage because they just don't need to take the risk. So you want to find somebody that wants to get on the ground floor to sort of really take the next step in their career. And the third thing is fire fast if you hire wrong. Yeah, we made a couple of mishires in the early days and the best thing to do is just fix it quickly and it's painful. But, um, you know, I think these memes of like, you just have to hire top talent. That's the only thing you can do. 
I think end up doing entrepreneurs a disservice. It's sort of like you just need to scale. These little one-liner memes end up not actually being that helpful in reality. You left obviously Mobile Iron having seen it reach the peak. And then you mentioned somewhere that sometimes it's just time to be done. How do you know when the time's up? One of the hardest things about being a founder and early stage entrepreneur is your ego and almost like your soul gets sort of tied into the company. And it's part of what I think gives founders and early hires like superpowers inside the company because they're that vested. The challenge with that is at some point that can create founder drama or hold the company back. And we sort of didn't do this at Mobile Iron officially, but it ended up we did, which is that there's something I call the founder oath, which is that I promise that it's about the mission, not me or my ego. So leave, trying to leave your ego out of it is a really important thing to be able to do. The second thing is sort of remember that, yes, everybody may work for you as CEO, but you work for them as well. And to remember that responsibility. And the last thing is that if you are so fortunate that the business grows beyond you someday, founder drama is the biggest thing that can screw up a good company. So gracefully step aside for the good of the mission. It's easy to say that, but it's hard to do. AJ, Suresh, and I, who were all the three founders of Mobile Iron, all three of us stepped out of our initial roles at one point. You know, AJ stepped out of his role, Suresh stepped out of his role, and eventually I stepped out of the CEO role and got the company from zero to like 150 million in public. I was straining to take the company to the next level. I probably could have figured it out. I probably could unlearn my way to the next level. But as a public company, you sort of have to ask yourself, is that the right answer for the business? And you have to do that in a dispassionate, ego-free way and be like, maybe the right answer is for me to step aside. So I did. It was hard on my ego. It felt hard and weird, but it was the right thing for the business. And I think that's sort of your ultimate goal as a founder and leader is to build something that has value and sustains itself. And sometimes it gets beyond you. And that's actually a good thing in some ways. So it's not a fun thing in the moment, but it's the right thing as a leader. Yeah. And Mobile Learn's not been the same company since then, just like Apple was not the same company after Jobs left. I think there's something to be said about the founder CEO and that walls are built with the founder's blood. You can't hire for that. But sometimes that's just the nature of the reality and you got to move on. Yeah, I struggle with that. Whether it was the right decision or not, I think it was still the right decision, but yeah, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of really good companies that get hosed up by the founder holding on too tightly too, Yeah, right? You know, there's probably more examples of that than Steve Jobs' examples. That is correct. I think the answer is just make sure you leave your ego out of it. That's the punchline. Yeah. I mean, this is not just a problem with CEOs. I mean, you're right. There are counter examples. I mean, the most famous athletes, they don't know when to retire, right? Like, and sometimes they have to, the artists and musicians or whoever, right? Not the case when you were on up and up and like on a super high, but sometimes that does happen. Yeah, it's hard. I wish there was a crisp answer for it, but sometimes it's just time and the company's getting beyond you. And yeah. that was the decision I made at the time and the decision I made with the board. And I think it was the right decision at the time. So uh, we'll move to your metamorph journey now, the second act. So far, you sound like someone who loves to build and scale. And if I may add, the more I'm reading also to teach, why did you decide to start metamorph? So you just answered the question for me, Axel. That's really interesting. You picked up on that. <laughs> so if you pull apart my personality, there's two archetypes. One is the builder and the other one's the teacher. And yeah, when I thought about what my 2.0 was going to be after Mobile Iron, at first I was like, okay, I'm going to go do the CEO again. And that would have been fine. It would have been fun. And, you know, would have been good, I hope. 
And that's the builder in me. But that wasn't very satisfying to the teacher in me. So I was like, all right, maybe I should just go be an investor. And then that was sort of all teacher, no builder. So then I was like, ah. So what I hope to accomplish with Metamore, if we call it operator-led buyout, is that me and my partner are both former uh, CEOs that started companies that took them public. We basically buy small SaaS companies and become executive chairman and our butts are in the building two, three days a week with the team. So the idea is that we're both builders and teachers. So you can ask us in a year whether it's a good idea or not, but that's a thesis and so far so good. And it's fun. We bought our first company and we're off to the races. T tell me honestly, I mean, as you see, you know, mobile land in today's world would be a decacorn. So when you see this post-pandemic boom in B2B SaaS, I mean, there's part of you who definitely wants to go have a first-hand crack at it. Does that ever cross your mind? <laughs> yeah, it does. I'm not going to lie. Like, there's so many great problems to solve and so much capital available right yeah. now that it would be fun to do that again. I'm not going to lie. That would be fun. But I'm sort of fortunate enough that I really thought for my 2.0 that I wanted to have a balance of both builder and teacher. And I think this is the best way to do it. I had to let go of that idea that I could go be CEO of the next great B2B software company and let go of that. And yeah, that still eats at me some days. I'm not going to lie, but uh, <laughs> I still think it was the right choice. Yeah. So we'll see. Ask yeah. me in like two years. Exactly. We can do this yeah. again in two years. Yeah. We'll have you on the pod to talk about it. You know, as they say, sometimes you got to live the life. It's the meaning of life. Well, not to have any regrets and not that you will ever have, but you, you got to be itching seeing, seeing what a incredible boom that is in B2B SaaS world. Before we go to the rapid fire, any other advice that you'd like to share with entrepreneurs? The biggest thing is just remember you're not alone. I just remember feeling like when things weren't going well and you're struggling with something, you feel particularly alone. And you're like, particularly right now when everything's going up into the right, you're like, <laughs> oh my God, am I the only one struggling with this right now? And you know, the reality is that I wasn't alone at the time and they're not alone at the time. There's others that are struggling with it. So reach out, ask for help and just, just remember you're not alone because yeah, we talk about the successes and the highs and the great parts and things like that, but there are dark times and yeah. ditches and two of your key executives decide to leave to go work somewhere else at a time. <laughs> and you're just like sitting with your head in your hands at home and the dinner table. And those are really lonely moments. So just don't remember you're not alone. I have to ask this actually as a last question. In the metamorph companies, are you applying any part of your playbooks that you mentioned in the oh, book? All of it. Yeah, exactly. Look, when you buy a company, so it's one of the interesting challenges and the things I like about private equity versus venture capital is venture capital, you own 10 to 15 to 20% of a business. Yeah. So you can only afford to commit so much time to any one particular company and really jump into an operational role to help and teach them because you've got three or four other investors that are in there at 10 or 15% too. But in a private equity world where you own 50, 60, 70% of a company, it gives you both the time and the economic incentive to really jump in and be part of the team. And so we are absolutely applying sort of the lessons we learned at Mobile Iron and Jive and the things that are in the book in terms of go-to-market playbook, you know, the early stage repeatability, the late stage repeatability, unlearning, like, yeah, absolutely. And it's great because like when you own a company, you and the CEO basically get to sit down and decide what to do and you just go do it. Amazing. Uh, it would be great to 
actually have you and one of the company founders talk through that playbook at some point of time on the pod because that's like something that is in action right you're just not about i'm applying it right now and i can talk about examples as well so that'll be great we could totally do that give us like six months and we'll have it nailed down we can talk about what worked what didn't work and you can hear from the head of sales and the cro what they thought about it and talk to the ceo like that would be fun actually that would be great to do so let's do that okay with that we'll go into the rapid fire round you ready bob let's do it okay what's the best b2b SaaS company right now I'll give you two answers to this. One is what's the best sort of big established B2B SaaS company out there right now? And then sort of who's my favorite like up and comer? So my favorite established B2B SaaS company out there was Snowflake. And you know, okay, you brought up Slootman earlier, but I just love what they're doing with transforming sort of the data layer, but they're also creating a data market around it. Like I think the things that they are doing they were thinking one or two steps ahead of everybody. And I think it's spectacular. My favorite sort of up and comer, interestingly, is isn't just a software company. The, uh, it's called Spring Health. Hmm. They are re-engineering mental health and applying technology and applying software. And frankly, you know, most companies like, and most insurance companies treat mental health as sort of a second or third tier offering in their healthcare services. And Spring Health is creating a tier one mental health service. And they went from like zero to 16 million to triple digits relatively quickly. And I just think not only is it a great business, but it's actually really adding value to the world. What's the biggest B2B SaaS problem that hasn't been solved yet? This is going to be a little bit contrarian because it's actually going to be a little bit of a, so I'll go ahead and tell you. So my biggest beef is the security industry. The security industry writ large is kind of a bug fix on underlying operating systems and virtualization layers that just aren't that good and aren't that secure. And the biggest problem that's not solved is why haven't we fixed that? Like, why do we have to have such a large security industry to like stick our fingers in lots of little holes in the dike? Like, why can't there be a more secure layer of computing, both at the operating system layer and the virtualization layer that helps us not need so much security, which is sort of contrarian because we all work for security companies and have done that before, but that's a big problem that really hasn't been solved yet that somebody should solve. And does that come from the Mobileine thought process? Because as an endpoint person, I used to think about it also all the time. Why can't just Microsoft fix all the things that I'm writing to fix right now, right? And why can't Linux do that? And to some extent, the mobile platforms sort of solved it to some extent, I would say. Um, so I think the answer is because there's so many lines of code that security issues come from either design issues or human error. And all of those platforms have so many millions of lines of code that you just can't cover the surface area. So I think there needs to be a different way to do it, like whether it's microkernels or formal verification or something like that, that just comes together. Like there's a couple companies working on stuff like that. There's one bedrock, okay. there's, you know, SEL4, there's stuff like that. But I just, it feels like we're all sort of treating the symptoms and we've kind of given up and solving the root problem. And maybe it's just not solvable, but I think it should be. And I think if that happens, like we can really start to trust the technology that so much of the world depends on. Great answer. First company to reach 10 trillion in market cap. 10 trillion? Yeah. Oh, 
probably Amazon if they don't get split up. Yeah. Okay. Book that has made biggest impact on you. Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz had a big impact on me. It was a good book. You know how you don't think about something until you sort of see it and then it becomes obvious. I was a B2B entrepreneur for most of my career. And after I read Hard Thing for Hard Things, I was like, that's like the first book I read that was addressed to me as a B2B entrepreneur. <laughs> like there's all sorts of consumer books out there, general business books, stuff like that. But like when I read Hard Things About Hard Things, it wasn't like, hey, here's all the brilliant decisions I made like building the next great consumer company. It was like, here's the stuff that didn't work and here are the hard things and I'm a B2B entrepreneur. Like once I read that, I was like, oh, that was a book that like was kind of for me and spoke to me. And interestingly, that book is one of the things that catalyzed and sort of gave me the courage to go write my books. I'm not sure I've ever told Ben that. I should tell him that. I was just going to say, it is one of the best, along with Andy Grove's, the title's escaping me. It's one of the best business books ever. I think people should stop reading any other business books. Just read those two. And, and the last question, Bob, one advice you'd give your 18-year-old self? This is going to be a little dichotomous. There's going to be two parts of this. The first one is, don't be afraid of failure. And I think for sort of high-achieving people, like failure seems like a really bad thing, but you learn a ton from it. And often the greatest opportunities have the greatest risks. Uh, the flip side of that is going to be the other piece of advice would be be associated with success. That being around people who are successful, having worked for a company that experienced hyper growth, you learn so much having been through that and gives you a chance to see if you can do it yourself someday. So don't be afraid of failure, but surround yourself by success which sounds sort of dichotomous, and it is, and I admit it. <laughs> That's the hard thing about hard things, I would say. <laughs> so, uh, Bob, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time. And I'm really looking forward to the follow-up you promised. So I'll follow up in six months. Yeah, that would be great. I think that'd be really fun to talk about the go-to-market playbooks and talk about a real example and talk about how it went. I think that'd be great. Let's do it. Anything else uh, you'd like to share with the listeners before we wrap up? So thank you guys for having me. I think the only thing I would add is that we've talked about some of the books Tahi and I wrote and go-to-market fit and finding it. We've had a ton of interaction with entrepreneurs about the concept of go-to-market fit. And as a result, uh, we are actually going to be open sourcing the third chapter of that book. And we're actually going to be announcing and releasing basically a Wikipedia for how to find go-to-market fit. It's called Unlock, and it's at unlock.survivaltothrival.com, and it's a beta version. You go check it out. It's being written and sort of evolved in time, and people are adding content. And it's really all about like, okay, this go-to-market fit concept is really important. So how do I apply it to my business? Please check it out. Thanks. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks a lot, Bob.